All right, the book of Luke, chapter 20. Luke 20. I've been plodding through the book of Luke and going through Luke 20 as well. We're going to finish up Luke chapter 20 this morning and also dip in a little bit into chapter 21, the first four verses there. Uh, There's a saying that goes, you can fool all of the people some of the time. You can fool some of the people all of the time. But you can't fool all of the people all of the time. They've never heard that. Some people say it was Abraham Lincoln, but no one really knows. Um, Abraham Lincoln also said you can believe everything that's on the Internet. I think I saw that somewhere. (laughs) Have you seen that? Well, let's add a fourth phrase. You can fool all of the people some of the time. You can fool some of the people all of the time. But you can't fool all of the people all of the time, and you can fool God none of the time. (laughs) That's part of the emphasis of this passage. We all know that that's true. And yet, from the moment that Adam and Eve tried to hide in the garden after eating the fruit that they were told not to, from that moment on, the human race has tried to hide from God and to fool God, and we try to fool everyone else too into thinking that we are better than we are, that we are more righteous than we are, that we are more holy than we really are. And here in, in Luke chapter 20, we find the story of some people who, who tried to openly display before everyone all their religious zeal, but whose hearts were, were corrupt and prideful. And they are shown in comparison to a woman who tried her best to not be seen but whose heart was truly and fully devoted to God. And as we consider these two examples of of, of serving God or not serving God, I think that Jesus is saying to us as a church and as individuals, I think he's saying this, serve God with genuine hearts that are filled with compassion and generosity. Let's serve God with genuine hearts that are filled with compassion and generosity. You know, we're all tempted to hypocrisy, to to acting like we're followers of Jesus rather than actually following Jesus. We're tempted to be more concerned with how others think of us and how they see our lives than we are concerned about what Jesus sees in our hearts. So we need to be reminded to guard against false religion, to guard against hypocrisy, and instead we're called to serve God with genuine hearts. Hearts that are filled with compassion and generosity. These verses bring to a close a a section in in Luke that has centered on Jesus' interaction with with some scribes and and some Sadducees and teachers of the law in Jerusalem. And, And he begins by offering a warning to the disciples that's based on the actions and the hearts of the scribes. And then he follows it with an encouragement based on the heart and the actions of a poor widow. So let's read these verses, beginning in Luke 20, verse 45, and we'll go through chapter 21, verse 4. And in the hearing of all the people, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. 
And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. In verse 45, just notice right off the bat that Jesus is teaching his disciples. But but he also doesn't seem to care who else hears what, what he's saying, does he? It says that it was in the hearing of, it, he said something to his disciples, in the hearing of all the people. So he's not speaking in, in hushed tones. He's he's not in a corner of the temple court where no one else can can hear him. But he's he's teaching so that anyone who wants to hear can hear. And surely the scribes could hear. If the scribes wanted to hear. They were trying to trap Jesus, remember, in something that, that he said. And if there were any scribes that heard what Jesus said, then they got an earful, didn't they? Jesus begins in verse 46. I mean, have you ever wanted to know what do people say when I'm not around? This is what Jesus says about the scribes, even though he knows that they are around. He begins by telling his disciples to beware. Be concerned about. Be careful of. Watch out for the scribes. We've gotten used to this a bit. We've, we've, we've seen it all throughout Luke and Luke chapter 11, all these woes on the lawyers and on the teachers of the law. Luke chapter 14, the wedding feast and the great banquet. We've seen Jesus talk about the hypocrisy of the leaders in Israel. But, but it should strike us that Jesus here is telling his followers, he's telling his disciples to beware of the people, of the scribes, those who were responsible for, for transmission, the transmission of God's word, those who were supposed to lead the people in how to follow God rightly. He's telling the disciples, watch out for those guys. Surely there were scribes who trusted Christ, but as a general rule, Jesus says you need to watch out for them. Why? Why does he say that? He lists some characteristics here of the scribes. We're going to kind of look at them and try to summarize them a little bit. But the first thing he says is, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. So first, they like to wear long robes. Jesus says, watch out for them. Jesus doesn't have anything against robes. And he's, he's not necessarily saying these aren't like bathrobes, right? This is, they're not walking around in that sense. This is These are robes that would have marked them out as some sort of an elite group. No common working class man or woman wore these long flowing robes that the scribes wore because these clothes would, would hinder any kind of, of work that they had to do. And we've all had that experience, right, where you show up and you've got the wrong shoes on or, you, or you, you, you wore the wrong shirt or the wrong pants and you're supposed to be doing, you end up having to work and, you know, what you're wearing just doesn't work in that situation. That never happened for the scribes because they could wear beautiful, impractical, ostentatious robes that set them apart as elite because they were, as one commentator called them, gentlemen of leisure, so the scribes were. They, were. they were like the people who sit on millionaire's row at Churchill Downs. They look good, and everyone else is in the infield. <laughs> That's the rest of us. And the scribes liked that. They thought, it says they liked that. They liked to wear long robes. They, they liked the ease of their life. They liked the way that they looked in front of other people. They liked the way that they stood out in the crowd. They liked to wear long robes. Next, Jesus says that they loved three things. So, they, who liked to walk around in long robes and love, first of all, they loved greetings in the marketplace. They loved to stroll through the marketplace and to saunter down Main Street, the place where everyone was, and have people give them respectful and humble greetings to say, good evening, sir, good, good morning, sir, good, good evening, teacher. They liked the way that the 
you know, the ancient paparazzi probably took note of everything that they did and talked about them. You know, did you see Samuel in the marketplace? What a beautiful robe he was wearing. I think it was an Armani, maybe. Something, you know. Oh, and the guy says, yes, I saw him. In fact, I was able to greet him. And he seemed very pleased because I bowed very low before I said, good morning, sir. They loved that. They thought that was great. They also loved the best seats in the synagogue. They liked it not because it allowed them to have a close-up view and to be able to, to hear the teaching, but they, they liked it because it gave everyone else a view of them. Because everyone could see when those scribes were nodding in agreement or when they bowed their heads reverently to, to pray. They thought that was great. So they, they loved greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogue. They loved to go to feasts after they were in the synagogue and, and be given the, the seats of honor, to be given the chair where everyone knew that they were supposed to be revered and they were supposed to be respected. And they liked to be the first that was, you know, they liked to be the one that was allowed to go to the buffet line first at the parties. And, you know, they took as much as they wanted because they were more important than everyone else. And who cares if everyone else has something to eat because they were the most important people. This is who the scribes are, Jesus says. And before we get to verse 47, where the tables turn a little bit, we can summarize what Jesus is saying here with John's description of the Pharisees in John 12. Three, where he says that they loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. I think that's a summary of what Jesus is saying here in verse 46. Beware of the scribes because they love the praises of men more than the praises of God. Their, their great desire was for everyone to look at them with awe and respect. They, they wanted to have all the benefits and all the perks of being well-respected by people. So much so that, so much so that they, they cared more about how they looked in front of other people than they cared about how they looked in front of God. Now, the disciples need this warning because the disciples always wanted these same things. They, they wanted to be exalted, especially in the Gospel of Mark. You see the disciples arguing and discussing about what? Who is the greatest? And now... Here, they're, they're getting, they're in the, they're in the city of Jerusalem, and the kingdom is getting ready to be set up as far as they're concerned. That Jesus has come in power. And so they're wondering, I wonder how high in God's kingdom I'm going to be seated. And Jesus says, you need to beware of that kind of attitude. We need to beware of, of loving the praises of people more than the praises of God. And so do we, right? I mean, so often we can love positions of honor and places of respect. And we can love it so much so that we're willing to hide our faults or our failures. If we can just keep up some sort of facade, some sort of, of act that makes us look good in front of everyone else. We're willing to, to lie to everyone else with our outward actions if it allows us to have the praises of other people and the benefits of, of honor that people are willing to give us. We need to watch out for this. I think there's a special word, and I just say this because... Um, in a seminary community, we've got lots of people training for ministry. There's a, there's a danger for those that are in a high position. These are scribes. These are guys who are teachers in Israel. And I think Jesus is telling them, listen, don't let that power go to your head. And, and, don't, and don't let that be something that you love more than the praises of God. Don't, don't let being exalted to, to some name, to some position, some title be more important than simply being a child of God. But that's the most important. It's scary at the top. Because if you fail, everything falls apart. 
you can see why these scribes would want to hide the hypocrisy in their hearts. Because if everyone knew what they were really like, they wouldn't be scribes anymore. They wouldn't have long robes, and they certainly wouldn't be seated in the high places of honor. But if they didn't love those things more than they loved honoring God, then they would be willing to admit those things. Let's be careful, all of us. Jesus peels back the outer layer of the scribes, as it were, and he he shows that a desire for the praises of others above pleasing God brings rottenness into our hearts. My wife cut into an avocado on Thursday night. It looked beautiful on the outside. And on the inside, it had all these strange spots. <laughs> it was completely inedible. We threw the whole thing away. And Jesus shows that when we love the praises of others more than the praises of God, we fall into rottenness. A desire for the praises of others above pleasing God brings rottenness into our hearts. We see that because he goes on in verse 47 to talk about other things that the scribes loved and other things that the scribes did. He says of these leaders that they devour widows' houses. Devour. It's this idea of eating ravenously like a, like a wild animal. I'm reading Lord of the Rings and the person that came into my mind was Gollum where he eats those raw fish and it's just disgusting. And that's what this is like. And they, the scribes are said to greedily gorge themselves on the homes of widows, on the property, on the finances of, of widows. Leon Morris says, A widow had few ways of earning money in the first century Judea and normally found life very difficult. And the scribes were charged with, with protecting widows. They were supposed to watch out for them, and instead they were taking advantage of them. Maybe they were charging for legal advice which was contrary to the law. Maybe they were offering them loans that they knew they couldn't repay. Whatever the, the specific things, these, these scribes, they were robbing the widows. In their greed, they were taking advantage of, of the weakest people in society for their own personal gain. They were like lions. You know, a lion, when they hunt a pack of, of animals, maybe gazelles, what do they go after? They go after the weakest ones. They go after the young, because that's the one that they can catch first. And that's what these scribes are like. I read an article titled, Top Ten Scams Targeting Seniors. So it's not just the scribes. I picked the, the ugliest one that I read. It's called the grandparent scam. <laughs> People do this. You ready? Scammers will place a call to an older person, and when the mark picks up, they will say something along the lines of, Hi, Grandma, do you know who this is? When the unsuspecting grandparent guesses the name of the grandchild, the scammer most sounds like the scammer has established a fake identity without having done a lick of background research. Once in, the fake grandchild will usually ask for money to solve some unexpected financial problem, overdue rent, payment for car repairs, etc., to be paid via Western Union or MoneyGram, which doesn't always require identification to collect. At the, t at the same time, the scam artist will beg the grandparent, please don't tell my parents they would kill me. How do you feel about that guy? <laughs> I, I don't feel very good about that kind of a person. And, and that's, in a sense, what Jesus is saying about the scribes, just to give a feel for what they're doing to, to the widows in this culture. They're taking advantage of them. And yet, these scribes then, Jesus says, would, would, would devour a widow's home, and then they would walk into the temple, and they would stand, and they would pray for hours with their hands lifted up and their, their eyes closed. They would get into a place where everyone could see them pray. But Jesus says they did it. Why? For a pretense. It was for show. 
This is just a show. The, this warning of Jesus, this whole section is very reminiscent of the words of the prophets. When, when God calls out the nation of Israel for focusing on, on external religion while neglecting the weightier matters of justice and righteousness. For, for keeping the minutia of the law while exploiting the poor and the helpless in society. For fasting while they are harming those that are in their charge. Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58 are great examples. You can read those. Amos 5 is another one. In fact, there's this song by, by John Foreman, who's the lead singer of, of Switchfoot, but has some great independent stuff. And he wrote a song based on Amos 5 that I think just drives this home. This is what he sings these words. Um, the first verse says, I hate all your, this is speaking from God's perspective in Amos 5. I hate all your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your praise, the hypocrisy of your festivals. I hate all your show. Away with your noisy worship, away with your noisy hymns. I stop up my ears when you're singing. I hate all your show. Verse 2 then says, Your eyes are closed when you're praying. You, you sing right along with the band. You shine up your shoes for services. But there's blood on your hands. You turned your back on the homeless and the ones that don't fit in your plan. Quit playing religion games. There's blood on your hands. And then the chorus, he says, instead, let there be a flood of justice. An endless procession of righteous living. Instead, let there be a flood of justice. Instead of a show, I hate all your show. This is what Jesus is saying. I hate this, this bakery, this, this show. One of my kids asked me this week about that song, actually, because we listened to it, and it's a pretty strong song. And they said, what's, what's wrong with closing your eyes when you're praying? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And I said, well, yeah, we certainly are. But, but what is what is Jesus getting at here? What were the prophets getting at? It's, it's that they, they, they could close their eyes and they could lift their hands and open their mouth in praise. And they only did it when everyone was watching. And privately, they were, they were harming others. They were, they were doing the exact opposite of what God told them to do. When no one was looking, they were taking advantage of the poor and the homeless and the widow and the orphan. God says, I hate that. So how about us? Got to ask, have we deceived ourselves into thinking that outward religion is, is enough while we neglect or even take advantage of the needy that are around us? Has our faith become some sort of show, some sort of sham? Have we deceived ourselves into to thinking that all these external actions that we do, all these religious practices are fooling God? Are we neglecting the weightier matters? Well, we don't fool God, right? You can fool God how much of the time? None of the time. And Jesus is clear that there will be severe and great punishment, he says here, for those who act devoted while neglecting what really matters. There are crimes of passion and there are crimes that are premeditated. And Jesus here says that when you know what you're doing and you know that it's wrong and you do it anyways, that there's greater condemnation. Let me lovingly say that if you're here and you think you can fool God, you are dead wrong. God sees through all of our hypocrisy. And the only person we're fooling is ourselves. He sees all the rottenness of our hearts apart from Jesus. The good news, though, this morning is that he doesn't ask us to act in a certain way to earn our salvation. He doesn't ask you to do certain things to make yourself right before him because we can't earn our salvation. What he wants us to do is admit that, that, that I am rotten. 
that I am sinful, that I can't earn my salvation. And once we admit to our sin against the Holy God, we are we are able to put our trust in Christ, whose, whose heart was pure always before God, who never put on a show, who died to pay for my hypocrisy and for my rebellion so that I could know forgiveness. I'd encourage you, if you're trying to act in a way to fool God, think that I can fool him enough that he'll let me into heaven, don't be a fool. Because you can't fool God. Turn from sin. Hope in Christ. Now, now for those of us who have come to Jesus by grace through faith, we need to ask, have I become deceived by the desire to, to look religious? To have the benefits of religion? Let me just ask some questions. Do I love the praises of men and women more than I love the praises of God? Do I confess my sins openly to others or do I hide them so that I can keep some sort of appearance of religion? Do I pray privately or do I just pray in public when people see me? Do I let everyone know all the great religious things and the practices that I've done? Does my faith center on serving my desires or on sacrificially helping those who are in need? You know, this hypocrisy stems from some understanding of discipleship that focuses too much on external displays of religiosity. Well, what does James say true religion is? It's to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the one. It's a both and. It can't be one or the other. We're to seek after holiness. We're to read scripture. We're to spend time in prayer. We are to fast, but we're also to care for the neediest in society. Daryl Bach summarizes it this way. He says, true devotion comes from the heart, is marked by humility, and cares for others. It does not use people. Let me say that again. True devotion comes from the heart, is marked by humility, and cares for others. It does not use people. We're to serve God with genuine hearts that are filled with compassion and generosity. So let's take all that energy that we're using to look good. You know, hypocrisy is hard work. Can you imagine how much hard work these guys had to put in to looking good? Let's take all that energy we're putting into trying to make ourselves look good in front of other people. And and by God's grace and Him empowering us, let's actually do what God wants us to do. Don't invest your time in putting on a show. It's not worth it. Let's invest our time and energy in truly following and truly doing what God calls us to. So we can fool God none of the time, right? Because he sees our, our hearts. And after this negative example of the scribes, we get a positive example, and we get it in an unlikely place, which is just how Luke always brings these things out. Those we assume that we can learn from are often poor examples, and those that we would naturally despise can be our greatest teachers. Let, let's just take note of this. Be careful. Be careful of esteeming some people and despising other people. Very often it's poor widows and outcasts of society that have much more to teach us than Christian celebrities. Don't despise people. Don't be deceived by outward appearances, whether that appearance makes you want to listen to someone or makes you not want to listen to someone. So the setting of verses 1 through 4 was probably in the temple in the the court of the women, as it was called. It was not a place just for women, but rather it was a place where women were free to go. Women were not allowed in every place, every part of the temple, but here they were allowed. And in this court, there were there were receptacles for offering. There were there were offering boxes. They were shaped like trumpets, and there were probably thirteen of them. Ironic that they were shaped like trumpets. This just came into mind. What does Jesus say when you give your gifts? Don't 
sound a trumpet. I wonder if he was thinking about that. Side note, you can think about that later because it just came into my head. But in that court, Jesus sees, he sees the rich. And he also sees a, a poor widow. And it seems a bit strange that Jesus is watching people. He's with his disciples and they're watching people put their offerings in. Doesn't that seem odd to you? But this was a public place and everyone saw things. And some people probably wanted everyone to see them. Maybe they made a big show of making sure everyone saw when they put their money into the trumpet. And everyone heard the clanging of the coins as they, they dropped in. And the rich were there. And they, like the scribes, they wanted to be seen. And Jesus saw them. But he also saw someone that no one else saw. He, he saw this poor widow. And you think she's a poor widow. I wonder if her poverty was due to the fact that she was exploited by the scribes, like it says in verse 47. Whatever the case, she's, she's poor. She stands and represents the most desperate person in society. There's hardly a position more desperate or helpless than being a poor widow. And so it's not surprising that her offering is small. She puts in two small copper coins, two leptos, which were one 128th of a denarius. So a leptos was equivalent to about five minutes of work. So literally, this not literally, but it's equivalent to pennies. And she's dropping pennies into the offering. So Jesus sees this act. He sees her, put her two coins in. They hear that that faint, faint, faint. And what does he say to his disciples? He says, this poor widow put in more than all of them. He put in more than all of them. She put in more than all of them. In one sense, that's totally not true, right? Of course she didn't put in more than all of them. There's no way that, that she put in more. Combined together, they surely put in more money than she did. So what is he saying? He explains it in verse 4, doesn't he? Verse 3, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. The rich came and they gave out of their surplus. They, they paid all their bills. They went to the grocery store. Put something aside for retirement. They splurged on some things that they had wanted for a long period of time. And then they looked at what they had left over. And they gave some of that. In contrast, this widow contributes not out of her abundance, not out of her surplus, but out of her poverty. She didn't go to the grocery store beforehand. And she couldn't go afterwards. Because this is all that she had to live on. I think, in part, this is a clear indictment on the scribes. She should have more than two leptons. She should have more than two coins because they should be taking care of her. It's not her fault that she's been devoured by the scribes. What a clear indictment on the scribes, but also what a clear statement of her devotion and of her faith. Her heart so loved God that she willingly gave out of her poverty and she gave everything that she had. So how were those two coins more than everyone else's? Well, because God doesn't count like we do, right? God doesn't, doesn't weigh in the same way that we do. Daryl Bach again says, Giving is not about the amount given, but the amount kept. It's not about the amount given, but the amount kept. The New Testament principle on giving doesn't emphasize 
a certain percent. It doesn't emphasize a tithe. If you give a tithe, I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm saying that's not the emphasis of the New Testament. The New Testament emphasizes rather the attitude of the heart. It's on giving cheerfully. It's on giving as each person has put into, as God has put into that person's heart. And it would seem that, that what Jesus is saying about true generosity is that true generosity asks not how much do I need to give, but rather how much do I really need to keep? Have you ever asked yourself that question before you give? How much do I need to actually have? And then maybe I can give away everything else. You know, you think about the rich young ruler. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? Sell everything that you have, everything that you have, and give to the poor, and then follow me. Did, did God need that man's money? No. He doesn't need that guy's money. What does he want? He wants his heart. He wants that rich young ruler's heart because money had taken up residence on the throne of his heart. And Jesus says, you need to dethrone money before I can sit on the throne and rule in your life. Jesus doesn't need our money. He didn't need that widow's pennies. He doesn't need your money. But he wants your heart. And when she dropped those coins in, it revealed her heart, didn't it? We've been thinking about Jesus as as king. And we find that this is a woman who was fully devoted to God, who, who was allowing God to have full rule and reign over every area of her life to the point of being reckless in her giving. She gives everything that she has. True discipleship doesn't say, how much do I have to give? But rather, how can I give God everything? How can God have everything? How can I be sure that I'm not holding on to anything, but actually I've given over everything to God? In contrast to that, hypocrisy says, how can I make it look like I've given everything over to the rule and reign of God without actually doing it? What's the minimum that I can give and still keep up the appearance of looking like I've given God everything that I own. That's the difference between um, um, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira in Acts. Remember that? He sells some property, and he gives all the proceeds of that property to the church to help with the relief of the poor and the support of the saints. And Ananias and Sapphira say, hey, that's a good idea. Let's sell some property and give it to the church. But we'll hold some back for ourselves but we'll tell them that we gave them everything. And so they go and they give it there in front of Peter. And they say, well, this, is, this is all the money that we made from the sale of this land. Because they want to look super holy. And what does Peter say? He says, you have lied. You have lied to the Holy Spirit and they are struck dead. There's the greater condemnation Jesus is talking about. Are they struck dead because they didn't give everything? No. They're struck dead because of their hypocrisy, because they lie. They're trying to look religious. They're trying to look great, and their hearts were so far from God. I think the principle here is broader than just money, isn't it? But, but money is a good measure of where our heart is. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So is my treasure, my possessions, the things that I own, the money that I have, is it devoted to myself or is it devoted to God? Do I look for ways to give? For the glory of God, I do look for ways to give for the glory of me. By giving God leftovers after I've spent my money on all my personal desires, or do I give to God first and in fact sacrifice some of my personal desires so that I can give to Him? Do I give the minimum that I have to? Or do I say with David, I'm not going to give God a sacrifice that costs me nothing? 
King Jesus isn't like Caesar. King Jesus doesn't collect taxes. In fact, there is no percent that God wants from you out of your money, other than 100%. He wants everything, because it's all his anyways. Let me pause and say, I hope you know that this is not a church that's trying to pill for your pockets every Sunday. We're not going to have an offering when we're done here. Okay, you've given, you've given, that's fine. I hope you know, though, that this is a church that wants God to have your whole heart. That God wants every part of us. And when we give like this widow, it's evidence of that. It's evidence that God has every part of this, of us. So I would encourage us all, I need to do this, that we would sit down this week and we would think, not about how much can I give, but rather, how much do I really need to keep? To ask, am I, am I making sacrifices in the way that I give to further the cause of Christ to help with the relief of the poor? And let me encourage you with, with this, this final thought. I, I just, you look at, at verse one. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper You know, the scribes were so concerned with what other people saw. And they failed to be concerned with their hearts and what Jesus saw. And yet this widow fades into the background. No one one sees her, but God does. God sees them. So I would just encourage you, brothers and sisters, God sees the gifts that you give. God knows. God knows what you're doing and those sacrifices that you are that you are making. He knows the way that you are seeking to help the homeless and the hurting. He knows the way that you helped someone even this week. No one else knows about it. He knows the rides that you give and the gas money that it costs you to give people rides. He knows the the time that you spend trying to help others, trying to serve them, sacrificing. He knows the time that that families spend where someone's away helping someone else and they're not together. He knows that that time. He knows the time that, that you're spending investing in your children, investing in your kids, sacrificing your desires, giving up your wants for them. He, he knows the sacrifices that are, we, are, we are making. He sees it. He knows the time that you spend on your knees in your closet, not in front of everyone so that people can see. He knows the time that you are fasting and praying for others. He knows, he knows the times that, that, that you are, are trying your best to fade to the background. He knows that when you, when you give money to someone anonymously who's, who's in need, God, God sees all of that. Don't ever feel like he doesn't see that. It's, it's not anything where we're trying to earn God's favor, is it? But rather it is a, a show of the devotion that we have. These acts won't save us, but they are wonderful, wonderful pictures that King Jesus owns our whole heart. We give him everything. And you can give him everything in every area of life and know that he sees it. He knows. Those who are hypocrites, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, have their reward. They get the praises of people. That's all they get. And one day, he says, even here, they will receive greater condemnation. But know this, Jesus says it over and over in Matthew 6, that our Father sees what is done in secret, right? And then what does he say? 
one day he will reward you openly. God sees what is done in secret, and one day he will reward you openly. And so in light of that, let's serve God. Let's serve God, not with hypocritical hearts, but with genuine hearts that are filled with compassion and generosity. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word, and then I'll close this in prayer. Know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus, we thank you that you never call us to do something that you haven't done yourself. Never point the way and say, go there. You rather say, follow me. And Lord, you have shown us what it looks like to lay down everything in obedience to the Father. You laid down your very life, and therefore you have been highly exalted and been given a name that is above every name. And Lord, if we would give all over to you, no one knows it, you know. And one day we will be honored for our devotion to you. So let us let us serve you with genuine hearts. I pray that you would root out any hypocrisy in our lives. I pray that you would kill any desire for self and for the praises of people above your praises. But in that as we have genuine hearts it would flow in compassion and generosity to others. Help us to see, Lord, identify in our lives and in our hearts the things that we're holding on to, the ways that we are not giving ourselves over completely to you. Lord, let us make sacrifices for you and for your glory. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.